We're in Daniel chapter 4 this morning. If you have your Bible on to you, turn it to Daniel chapter 4. Phone Bible, paper Bible. Maybe you have it memorized in three languages in your head. That's cool too. Daniel said, I don't. <laughs> if you do, come see me. That'd be pretty cool. Daniel chapter 4. We've been going through the book of Daniel verse by verse for the last few weeks. It's been large. It's been awesome. It's been timely. It's been relevant. And I just love that. That's so God because the book of Daniel was written literally between 25 and 2600 years ago. And it's still completely as relevant today as it was the ink went onto the page and wasn't even dry on the page yet. That's God for you. Amen. That's his word for you, right? Now, if you have not been with us the last few weeks, here's the hilariously short flyover Coles Notes crash course version of where we've been in Daniel so far. We have seen that the author of this book, Daniel, when he was a young Jewish man, he was caught up in one of the darkest periods in his nation's history. It was called the exile to Babylon. Somebody say Babylon. Daniel and many of his people were literally deported, exiled, sent away, taken captive, and forced to live in a foreign land under a foreign nation. Babylon was a pagan place. They were very spiritual in Babylon, but not anything pertaining to the Holy Spirit. Uh, it was wild culturally. It was sexually liberal. It was far from home. It was oppressive. It was not a good place to be. Very difficult circumstances for Daniel and for his friends. But what we've seen is that Daniel and his friends resolved to remain faithful to God even though they were in Babylon, right? And we've seen, most importantly, that God has shown up already time and time again in Babylon. Does that sound familiar so far? Yes, to six of you it does, okay. We'll now rewind to week one again. Now, the other thing we've seen, very, very important about the book of Daniel is Babylon is not just a place that used to exist, it's a spirit that still does exist, right? It's spiritual warfare. Spiritual warfare is one of the backdrops to the book of Daniel. Our battle as Christians is not against flesh and blood. People aren't the enemy, but it's, it's against powers and rulers and spirits and authorities in the spiritual realm, in the unseen realm. And the spirit of Babylon is one such spirit. And we've said that the whole purpose, the whole bit, the whole angle of the spirit of Babylon is to change your allegiance. Somebody say allegiance. That's talking about who your king is, who you worship. It's to change that from Jesus and put it anywhere else. That's the whole purpose of the spirit of Babylon. And so that's where we've been through the first few chapters of Daniel. We are now in Daniel chapter 4. We're actually on verse 4 of chapter 4. Sean brought us to the end of verse 3 last week. By the way, Sean did so well last week and he preached so hard. I think his feet lifted up off the ground and he floated away like a helium balloon. And he, and he hasn't been seen or heard from since. So anyway, <laughs> he, he went out on a high note. Okay. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Moving along. Yeah, yeah. Chain his feet to the floor next time. Da Daniel 4, 4. Let's, have, let's just read that together. Let's start with that. It says this, Daniel 4, 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar was the king of Babylon. Someone asked me last week about how to spell his name, and they got it right, by the way. So someone's listening and someone's reading. That's good. Nebuchadnezzar. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house. I was prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me 
that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, that's a fancy word for Babylonians, the astrologers, they all came in, all the spiritual people, and I told them the dream, but they shockingly could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. Now, some of your translations might even say, in whom is the spirit of God, the Holy Spirit. Daniel is full of the Holy Spirit. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation." Now, let's pause there for a couple of minutes. The sequence, what we've just seen, Nebuchadnezzar, he's prospering, he's at ease, the wind is in his sails, he's doing just fine, or so it seems. Notice that there's no mention of God anywhere at the beginning of what we read. Nebuchadnezzar's just fine on his own, or so he thinks. Then trouble comes, he has this dream, the dream freaks him out, rocks him to his core, Nebuchadnezzar hits the panic button. He scrambles to fix it by whatever means he can think of in his brain. Those means fail. They don't work. The magicians, the people he called in, they can't help him. And finally, at last, he takes the God route, right? It says literally in verse eight, at last he called Daniel, right? It's his last resort to think of the guy uh, that is full of the Holy Spirit and the God that can help him, right? Notice that's a pattern. You read that and you go, that kind of sounds familiar. Didn't we already talk about this? That's because, yeah, we pretty much did. In Daniel chapter 2, the very same thing happens. Nebuchadnezzar's doing fine, has a dream, freaks him out, calls in his people, they can't help him, and then Daniel shows up and God helps Nebuchadnezzar through Daniel. The same thing is happening here. You would think Nebuchadnezzar might have learned something from the first time, Right? But here he is again, going through the same pattern. You would think last time, oh, I had a dream like this, really freaky. Who helped me? Oh, it was Daniel and the God of Daniel. Maybe I should start with him this time. In fact, he even calls Daniel in this, the chief of my magicians. He should have known Daniel's the best for this kind of thing. But he doesn't learn. He goes through the same pattern, the very same thing that he did the last time. Now, before we come down too hard on Nebuchadnezzar, somebody knows where I'm going. We oftentimes do the very same thing in our lives. I laugh. When I was a kid, I used to watch a lot of NASCAR. Any NASCAR fans in the house? Like four of you. That's what I figured. There wouldn't be that many. I loved NASCAR. I would watch it every weekend. Jeff Gordon fan, colorful car. It was awesome. Good memories. However, most of the people in my life did not share the same enthusiasm for NASCAR that I did. Right? My brother made fun of me. My friends made fun of me. The girl I'm now married to made fun of me. And they would all say the same thing. They'd say, NASCAR, are you kidding me? It's just a bunch of old grown men driving around in circles. You don't even have to turn right on the steering wheel. It's just left turns for four hours. Call me when the paint dries, right? And I said, no, you don't get it. It's fun. Like, you got to get into a driver, and, just, and it's fun, and there's crashes. Who doesn't like crashes? They didn't get it. 
I now say retroactively to all of those people, hey, we as human beings go through around the circles just like the NASCAR drivers do. We go through the same motions as Nebuchadnezzar, time after time after time. We get into this headspace where, hey, I'm doing fine, and I'm doing just fine on my own. Right? I have a good job. I have a good family. I make good money. I have good friends. I have good times. Whatever, my health is good. Whatever. And we leave God out of the equation altogether. What we're really saying, even though we might not say it verbally, audibly, we say, I'm doing just fine without the Lord. He never comes into our vocabulary. He never comes into our mind at all. And then trouble comes. Any of you ever had troubles in your life before? It should be all of you. If you haven't, I want to know your secret, okay? Talk to me after. Trouble comes. And that kind of shakes us. Whoa, whatever, health scare, family scare, job loss, money troubles, whatever it is, fill in the blank. That rocks us, that jars us. And a lot of times we then scramble to fix our problems in our own strength, in our own resources. I'll lean into myself. I got this. Sometimes that doesn't work, does it? Sometimes the problem just keeps getting worse and worse and it doesn't go away. Where a lot of people stop is right there. Now they're in this cycle of despair and hopelessness. Many people don't even approach the God thing at all. Some people do. Some people, like Nebuchadnezzar, as a last resort, turn to the Lord. Oh, I'm desperate. I have no other option. What can I do? Lord, please help. In any case, I would submit to you that both of those things aren't the path that we should be choosing. I mean, it's great if you do turn to the Lord in the end. That's better than not. But I'm saying there's an alternative to that. What if we flipped the script around and we ran to God in the first place? What if we flipped the script around and rather than saying, I'm just fine on my own and I'm going through my life without any thought or mention of God, by the way, you know who's responsible for that? That's the spirit of Babylon. That's a pride thing. I'm, do, I'm, I'm good. I got this. No, you don't. Get over yourself. You're welcome. What if we began in a place that we're already walking with the Lord? We're involving the Lord in every area, every decision, every trouble in our life. What if he was our first response and not our last resort? Well, I'm here to tell you today that that's possible, and that's what God desires for you. God has a life for you. Turn to your neighbor and tell them God has a life for you. Jesus said in John 10, 10, I come that they may have life and have it to the full, abundantly. Yes, that's talking about in eternity in the next life, but that's also talking about this life in the here and now as well. And the whole thing of the life that God desires for you, it's not a trouble-free, carefree, perfect, nothing bad ever happens to you, right? It's not how it works, but it's a life where you have a relationship with the God who made you. He is actively involved and at work in your life. He is your center. He's not the last resort, but your first response. He is your friend. He is on your side. You involve him in everything in your life. That's what he desires for you. Jesus said that is what it is to truly live. It's even when the bad things happen and the troublesome things happen, they happen around this context of, yes, but Jesus is my center. He's my Lord. He's my Savior. So I'm going to be fine. 
My hope is in him anyway. That is the life that Jesus has for you. And I wonder, would our lives look a little bit different if that's the mentality that we had? I think so. That is what Jesus is calling us to. Nebuchadnezzar, he doesn't have it. He definitely does not have this life. And it's interesting because he, at least to look at him externally, he would be a guy that looked like he had it all going on. You have to understand, at this time, in, the, in, in, the, in this time in history, Babylon was the superpower of the world. They were a massively huge empire. Nebuchadnezzar was the king, the top dog. He was rich, he was powerful, he was influential. Everybody knew who he was. He could have had all the resources. Anything he needed was at his fingertips, at his disposal. You say, wow, what a good life that is. Yeah, but then you look at his life, and you look at how he responds when trouble comes, and you can tell this guy's empty inside. This guy has nothing in the tank. This dream comes. It says he was greatly alarmed, and he was afraid. He's gripped by fear. Some of you know what that feels like. In other places, circumstances don't go the way Nebuchadnezzar wants them to, and he freaks out. He's angry. He's greatly enraged. I love the one last week in Daniel 3. He was so mad, his face like changed shape. He just distorted and contorted. He, he, he's not a stable person. He's not a solid person. No matter all of the material, external things he has inside, he does not have it. His center is off. He's way out of whack. Listen, I love you. Some of you guys are out of whack because your center is off. And you might look like you've got it all going on on the outside, but inside there's turmoil. There is not peace. And I want to just speak to you today. Jesus has a life for you. Jesus wants to be your peace. He wants to form your identity. He wants to be your center. And we do well. We do the best when we humble ourselves and invite him in and make that our life, the life he wants for us. Make that our own. It doesn't have to be like Nebuchadnezzar and like most people in the world are living. You can trust and you can follow Jesus and you can see something change in your life, brothers and sisters. I'm just telling you. I'm just delivering the mail to you, okay? If you want to know more about that later, come talk to me. I'd love to talk more about that. I'll talk all day to you about that. But alas, let's move on in our text. What we're going to see in the next bunch of verses, we're going to see a reminder. Somebody say, a reminder. Something that we got to remember. But let's read it first. I've now lost it. There it is. Uh, verse 10. All the way, we're going to read all the way to verse 27. Here we go. Verse 10. There it is. Oh. Here's the dream. Nebuchadnezzar says, The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw, and behold, a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, that would be an angel, yes, we believe in angels, a messenger from the Lord came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, chop down the tree, lop off its branches, strip off its leaves, scatter its fruit, let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. 
Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's and a beast's mind be given to him. And let seven periods of time pass over him. Pause for just one sec. There's some dispute about what the seven periods of time means. Not everyone agrees. The general consensus, though, is that those are seven literal years, but not everyone thinks that, and that's okay. Uh, verse 17, the sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones. Listen, this one's important. To the end that the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. We're going to come back to that verse. This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw, and you, O Belteshazzar, tell me the interpretation because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. You want to know why that is? Because he did interpret the dream, and it wasn't good. He had some bad news to deliver. And here's the king, the powerful king in front of him. He says, I don't know if I want to tell him this. But the king answered and said, Belteshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. He says, let me have it. So Daniel, Belteshazzar, answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong, its top reached to heaven, visible the whole earth, leaves are beautiful, fruit abundant, food for all, beasts of the field, uh, the branches, the birds of the heavens live. Verse 22, this tree, it is you, O king, you who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of the roots, bound with the band of iron and the tender grass, I'm going fast here, let him be wet with the dew of heaven, his portion be with the beasts of the field, seven periods of time, let me try to talk a little faster like I'm an auctioneer, this is the interpretation, that was funny, thank you, verse 24, this is the interpretation, O king, it is a decree of the most high, which has come upon the Lord, my Lord the king, that you, Nebuchadnezzar, shall be driven from among men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox. You shall be wet with the dew of heaven and seven periods of time shall pass over you. Here it is again. Till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump of the roots in the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know, here it is, that heaven rules. Are you seeing the pattern here? I hope so. Therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Take a breath. A lot going on there. Just to sum up, Nebuchadnezzar's dream, he sees this tree, it's cut down, the stump remains, and Daniel comes along and says, the interpretation, here's what your dream means, because a lot of times in Bible language, in Bible dream language, stuff is always very representative, symbolism, imagery. He says, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the tree. He's gonna be brought low, humbled, humiliated, and then he's gonna be restored. That's the dream and the interpretation right there. And in all of that, there's a reminder for us, okay? This reminder is two-part. Can you handle two parts? Yes. Part one is 
in a global sense, a universal, worldwide, for everybody at all times kind of a sense. Part of the point of Nebuchadnezzar's dream is to remind us that God is the king and he is over all earthly kings and kingdoms and cultures. That's what that dream is supposed to remind us of. We reiterated all these verses. We hammered them out. That the living may know that the most high rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. That means he's over it. He's in control over it. Daniel 4.25, the most high rules the kingdom. Daniel 4.26, no, the heaven rules. All people, all places, in all, at all times need to be aware of this. Our God reigns. Our God is seated on a throne. He is enrobed in majesty and he is above it all. That's what this dream is talking about. And I find it really interesting that this dream comes to Nebuchadnezzar of all people. Nebuchadnezzar, as I said earlier, was the greatest king in the world at that time. The most influential person the top dog, top of the org chart. There's Nebuchadnezzar. He also ruled over Babylon. And we've talked about how Babylon represents pride and idolatry and godlessness. And I'm fine without God. And we're doing our own thing. And it's to this king sitting over that kingdom that God shows up and says, don't forget about me. Our God reigns. God is over him. And I want to just point out, verse 17 right there. Let's dig a little deeper on that one. If Daniel 4, 17 is true, that the Most High rules over the kingdom of men and he gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men, this is a bit of a mind bender, but I want to just say this. I want, I want to help shape your worldview on something here today. Going after your mind. If verse 17 is true, this means that every leader that's ever led, every king, every prime minister, president, sultan, I don't know, whatever, every leader in history, every leader that is currently, and every leader that's going to be in the future has either been appointed to that position by God or allowed in that position by God. That's large. We might be able to get that pretty easily when we're talking about good kings, queens, rulers. Oh, thank you, God, for putting them there. What about the bad ones? You're telling me, let's just, if verse 17 is true, which it is, you're telling me that God was responsible somehow God either appointed or allowed a guy like Adolf Hitler to rule who did terrible things, inexcusable things, demonic things. You're telling me that God is allowing what's happening in places like North Korea right now or places like Stalin's Russia or Vladimir Putin. Dare I say it? Oh, friends today, you mean to tell me that God had something to do with Donald Trump being in office? You mean to tell me that God had something to do with Justin Trudeau being in office? Yes. Yes, he does. You say, I think I have a problem with that. Right? We're being honest. It's okay. The question that comes out of that then is, wow, does that make God like evil or something? 
If God would allow or appoint certain people like that into these positions, what does that say about God? Well, a couple of things. Number one, <laughs> number one, God is God and you are not. Okay? We are the clay, he is the potter. And the Bible says, what right does the clay have to say to the potter, here's how you make a pot? What right do we have to say to God, I don't think you're doing your job right? It literally is going to say in verse 35 in our text of Daniel 4, no one can say to God, what have you done? He's God. We're not. We don't always understand his purposes. We don't always see the whole plan. But that doesn't change who he is. That doesn't change what he's doing. He's God. The second thing, perhaps a little more immediately helpful, you have to remember, again, we're thinking about leaders and, and, and people that are evil, that are in positions of influence, and God has allowed them or put them there. You have to understand that God, it comes all the way back to the concept of how God gives us free will. You've heard this before? God doesn't want to treat us like we're puppets on the string, right? He gives us freedom to choose. Now, he has certain things that he wants us to do, of course, and ways that he wants us to live, but he lets us choose. No one's forcing you. You can leave this place and go do whatever you want. If you do something bad, you might get arrested, but like theoretically, we're free to live however we want. Because God wants us to, to choose him. We're not puppets. Now, if we have the freedom to choose our actions, then we also have to face the consequences of our actions, right? Maybe you heard your parent or like Dr. Phil or something say, if you choose the behavior, you choose the consequences. What happens is God gives us the freedom to choose. We choose. Sometimes we choose right. Let's be honest. Sometimes we choose wrong. Matter of fact, my Bible says that all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We have all somewhere along the line chosen to sin. And what happens is sin is not supposed to be in the world. This is not how God created it. But when we, in our freedom to choose, when we choose to sin, sin enters the world and basically breaks it, wrecks it, corrupts it. The reason that the world is so crazy in our day and age and in every day and age is because of the presence of sin in the world. This is not how God wanted it to be. There's a lot of stuff going on that is not from God or from God's heart. But that's part of the trail of are getting to choose, right? Does that make sense? If God was to step in and start doing this, I mean, which he does, but now we don't have free choice anymore, right? And part of the thing, let's bring this right back to like leaders and, and, and evil, corrupt, whatever, kings, rulers. Some of those have been elected fairly. There, there are evil people sitting in positions of power because there is sin in the world and sin breaks and corrupts and ruins everything. And part of the trail of that, where that ends up is you get people in high positions that really shouldn't be there because they're not good. They're not healthy people. Sometimes people just take power by force, right? We didn't elect them. They just stormed the castle and declared themselves to be king. You say, how is God in that? How is God over that? Well, here's what I want to say. Regardless of who sits on the throne on the earth, God's purposes from his throne in heaven still always come to pass. I, I heard a good analogy of this one time. Let's just say that our life and our history is like a big boat. It's like a big ship. Okay, we're all on it. We're all sailing along on the ocean. We're going on a cruise. Sounds fun. 
God is the captain of the ship. On the ship, we're allowed to act however we want. Again, there's things we should and shouldn't do, but we can rearrange the furniture. We can paint the whole thing a different color. We can even ram a hole in the side of the boat if we want to. It'd be dumb. But the boat, is, no matter what we do on the boat, the boat is still going to go where the captain is leading it, regardless of what happens on the deck. That's like life. That's like history. It still goes where God wants it to go. God sees everything that happens. Again, we're thinking politicians, kings, rulers, whatever. Sometimes he just allows it. Sometimes he appoints it. But history still goes the way that God wants it to go. And here's the rub. You say, well, what is God's plan? Where is God wanting this whole thing, this whole world, this whole history, this whole life to go? It's right there. God's plan is that the living may know that the most high rules. God's plan is that people would know the most high rules, the kingdom of men, that we would know that heaven rules. That's the whole angle. We're supposed to see God and know God. Even through all the smoke and the evil and the chaos in the world, we're supposed to be able to see the light of Jesus shining brightly through it. And so we can have hope in him instead of the broken world. That's God's plan. God's plan is that when we see evil kings and kingdoms and cultures and systems and ideologies in the world, we would be reminded, oh right, there is a better king, a righteous king, an eternal king, and his name is Jesus. My hope is in him, not in what I see here. God's plan is that even though there is evil in the world, we would still know there is hope in the world because of Jesus. We already talked about this this morning. God has a life for you. He loves you. He cares for you. He created you. Your life is not an accident. And even though like God wants to have this relationship with us and we've sinned against him, we've severed the trust, we've severed the cord, we've made it impossible for us to just be right with God on our own. We can't just walk into the, hey God, here I am. No, we're sinners. And you can't work hard enough, do enough, try hard enough, be religious enough, put enough money in the offering plate, etc., for God to then say, there, you've earned your way back into my favor. You're now right with me. No, it's not about what we do. It's about what God has done for us in sending Jesus to the earth. The wages of sin is death, the Bible says. We have all sinned. We ought to die for it. But instead, God sends his only son to die instead of us. Jesus gives his life. He pays for our sin. He sacrifices and substitutes himself on the cross instead of us. Jesus takes on the full weight of your sin and mine. And that's a long list for this guy, but Jesus paid it all on the cross and he died. But he also rose because he had no sin of his own. The grave could not hold him. Death could lay no claim to him. So Jesus rises victoriously. He's alive today. He's ruling and reigning, sitting on a throne today and he's inviting every single person to repent of their sin, to trust in him, to follow him, to surrender to him, to put their hope and their confidence in him for the forgiveness of sins. And then when you do that, the Bible says you're saved, you're forgiven, you're made new, you're born again, and you can start living the life that God created you to live. Somebody thank Jesus up in this house today. We don't deserve any of that, right? But he wants us to know this, and he wants us to live under this. Jesus is a good king, He's better than any king that we see on this earth. 
That is God's plan, and he uses all the evil in the world, including in any government seat, in Parliament Hill, wherever. He uses all of that to get our attention, to turn to Jesus, to run to Jesus. That's the point of that. That's for everybody at all times in all places. Here's the second part of the reminder, though. Don't lose sight of the personal level here either. Notice in verse 25... Daniel says, this dream is so that you, Nebuchadnezzar, will know that the Most High rules. That you will know. That I will know. See, it's really easy to look around and say, yeah, you know, that person needs to change. That person needs to smarten up. That person needs to repent. That person needs to surrender. Yeah, what about the person in the mirror? Right? It's not just about what God is doing out there. It's about what God wants to do in here, in you as well. And this dream is cropping up for Nebuchadnezzar. Notice it came just to him. It didn't get broadcast on the Babylon PA. It went right to him because he's trying to get his attention. Wake up. God is trying to get your attention and mine. We've got to wake up. Look what he says to him. He says, break off your sins. That's to repent. Repent means to turn away, turn around. You're going this way. You're living this way. Stop. Wake up. Lay it down and run to Jesus. He's making that invite to us as well. He says, practice righteousness. Now, this is a process. This is a lifelong thing. This is about being the person God wants you to be and doing the things God wants you to do and growing to be more like the Lord. That's a process, but that's the target we got to aim at. And that's the Holy Spirit in us thing, for sure. And he says here, and break off your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed. The high level of that is loving other people. When you look around and you see people struggling and in need and they're hurting and they, whatever. They need Jesus or they need assistance. They need money. They need food. They need whatever. Primarily, they need Jesus. The point is this, it's not just you and Jesus, it's Jesus, others, and you. So step out, serve other people around you. That is the counsel God gives to Nebuchadnezzar. It's the counsel he gives to us. We need to repent. We need to grow in our righteousness, and we need to make sure we're loving other people along the way. Here's the point of that whole dream. I said it already, but I'll say it again. Our God reigns. Our God right now is seated on a throne, glorious in splendor, awesome in majesty. Our God reigns. You say that with me. Our God reigns. Our God reigns. We just need, we need to believe, we need to be a people who live like that is true, that our God is sitting on a throne right now, and that's where our hope is, that's we're going to stand before him one day. And the point is this. We've got to humble ourselves under his rule and reign. We've got to start acting like he's really the king. Because it's easy to say, yes, Jesus, you're my Lord. It's not just this. It's this. We've got to live like that's true. That's the point of that dream. That's a reminder for us. Jesus is king, and we've got to humble ourselves under his kingship and his lordship. Make sense so far? Okay, let's keep rolling then. Oh, I do have a bonus point. Oh, some of you are going to be very upset at me for saying this. I'm probably going to have fun saying it. (laughs) One thing I wanted to point out, I feel like this is a word uh, for our church specifically. I want you to make note of how Daniel 
treats King Nebuchadnezzar. Yeah, he honors them, I heard somebody say. It's exactly what he does. Remember for context here, Daniel has been taken captive by Nebuchadnezzar and his nation. He's been deported from his homeland. We talked in the first week of our series that Daniel was likely made a eunuch, a.k.a. castrated. How many of you? That's a bad day, right? He's forced to live there, and it's this godless place, and he's trained and indoctrinated, and there's, it's all kinds of stuff happening for, to, around Daniel. That's not good. Daniel, it could be very easy for him to be bitter against Nebuchadnezzar. He had a dream. I ain't helping him. Right? But that's not what he does. He stands before the king, and he shares the interpretation of the dream. Right? He honors him. He serves him. Even though there's a lot of stuff happening that he doesn't like. Oh, oh, I just can't wait for the emails to come in this week. Some of you guys don't really like the government very much. Let me just say this. No one's asking you to like the government, okay? No one's asking you to do that. However, what happens is, if we're not careful, that turns into bitterness. That turns into hatred. That turns into disrespect. And again, I'm not saying I'm perfect in this area, but I've heard some of you guys. It's like, hey, how you doing? How's the weather today? Oh, I hate Justin Trudeau. It's like, oh, okay. We went from zero to 60 pretty quickly there. Okay. Again, I'm not, I'm not asking you to like Justin Trudeau, but here's the point. I'll just read to you a few things from the scriptures. Romans 13 talks about being subject to those who are in authority over us. 1 Timothy 2.12 says, pray for those who rule over you. I'm asking this guy, when's the last time we prayed for Justin Trudeau? Ouch. Philippians 4 says, let your reasonableness be known to all. I want you to know something. If our knee-jerk reaction in every conversation we're in is about how awful the government is, I'm just telling you something. People around you hear that and they go, wow, this person. Whoa. They're pretty intense. Not very reasonable. All I did was ask, how's the weather today? Galatians 6.10, as far as it's in our power, do good to all people. It says, especially those of the household of faith, but all people. And when our language and when our heart is just so quick to spew off the, the negativity and the hatred against the government, again, I will reiterate, no one's asking you to like them, but where are we commanded to hate them? That's what I want to know. Where are we commanded to speak against them again and again? Where are we commanded to disrespect them or anybody? What God is calling us to do, oh, oh Lord, is to love and honor and serve those who are in authority over us, even if we don't like them. And I mean, our witness is tied right up in that too. You have to understand that, guys. When we go about in the world, I'll just ask you this. What's, you don't have to answer out loud, but what's better for our witness? If we smack talk the government or we try to do our best to serve those around us, right? What's better for our witness? Just pulverizing them with our words or praying for them? What's better for our witness? Being known for all the things we're against? We are against some things as Christians, 
I think we'd be a lot better served if people really knew more than that what we're for. We're for a lot of things. We're for Jesus. We're for people. We're for the Bible. We're for kids and families. We're for salvation. We're for freedom. We're for a lot of really amazing things, but of all people here is, well, I hate that, and I don't like that, and they're crooked, and they're corrupt. We're missing a whole side of things. Just missing it. What's better for our witness, making it your cause and your mission to just complain about everything, or making it your cause to do what you can to advance the kingdom of God? Right? We have a choice in that. And look, you might say, well, you don't understand the government's unfair to us. So? Remember what Jesus said, you're actually supposed to love your enemies and bless those who persecute you. That's a mind bender. Thank you for persecuting me. I'm delighted. <laughs> but there it is. And furthermore, you say, well, but they're doing things that aren't good. Listen, our hope is not in the government anyway. My hope does not stem from whether the government does or does not do the right thing. My hope is in Jesus Christ. And yours ought to be too as Christians. Again, I will say one more time and then I will move on and stop talking about this. No one's asking you to like what's happening. I don't like what's happening. But we need to be sure that we're loving in our hearts. This is the bottom line. Okay, before someone throws at me, uh, something at me, let's move on. Let's read the last bit of our text. That's the reminder. I'll say this too. That's not a word of shame and condemnation. It's a word of invitation. Like, let's trust Jesus with that. And he'll help us do better. Okay. Love you guys. Last bit of our text is a warning. Somebody say warning. Warning. I want to read from verse 28 to the end of the chapter, verse 37. It says this. All this, all that was in the dream and prophesied, came upon King Nebuchadnezzar, at the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, Is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty? While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven. O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field." You shall be made to eat grass like an ox and seven periods of time shall pass over you until you know, here it is again, that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. And immediately the word against, was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox. His body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. That one grosses me out. I won't lie to you. One's a little much for me. I'm going to just stop there. I'm going to read the rest of it later. So you'll see the sequence here. Nebuchadnezzar is given this warning. He doesn't change. He doesn't heed the warning. It says 12 months go by. God gave him a whole year. A whole year, and he did nothing. God's shown up in previous chapters in Daniel. Showed up to Nebuchadnezzar. He's, he's done nothing, and he continues to do nothing. He continues on in his prideful, self-centered, self-reliant, self-sufficient ways. And it says that he's walking on the roof of his palace. Again, this is the city of Babylon, the great city. He is in the royal palace. He's on the roof. You know what that is? He's looking down on everyone and everything else. I'm the man. I'm awesome. I got, I got this, guys. 
That's still his heart. Matter of fact, look at verse 30, what he says. Is this not the great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty power for the glory of my majesty? Right? He doesn't sound like he's getting it, just saying. God is in there nowhere, and he is so full of himself. He's still full of pride. He's still resisting what God wants to do in him. And God shows up, and he fulfills that word against him. Nebuchadnezzar is humiliated. All this stuff about made to eat grass like an ox and his mind was changed. Uh, I did a little research on that, which I will not expound upon this morning, but uh, that actually is a real medical condition that some people struggle with. Um, So that was kind of interesting. Basically, Nebuchadnezzar, I don't know if this is politically correct to say, he basically goes nuts and he's acting like an animal. For seven, possibly seven years, that's what he does. I want to just say this. God hopefully will not do that to you and I. But make it known there's a principle in there. God is not afraid to bring people low. God is not afraid to bring us low. God is not afraid to cause things in your life to shift. He can do that because he's over it. He can do whatever. And if we're not getting it continually, over and over again, God is not afraid to change things and bring us low. But do you know why he does that? It's because he loves us, and it's because when we're finally brought low, finally we're at rock bottom, we might finally come to our senses and look up. And that's what Nebuchadnezzar does here. Verse 34, at the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, look what it says, lifted my eyes, where? To heaven. My reason returned to me, and I blessed the Most High, and I praised and honored him who lives forever. When he looked up, he stopped looking within, so focused on himself, making himself the center of his life. He's brought low. He finally looks up, and God shows up and helps him. And God changes things for him. There's a principle in there for us. And look what he says. He starts praising God for his dominion is an everlasting dominion, right? The words on his mouth a minute ago were, look at Babylon, my dominion. Now he's on to God's dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation, right? Just a minute ago it was, look at my kingdom. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. A minute ago he was looking down on all the inhabitants of the earth. God does according to his will among the host of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth and none can stay his hand or say to him, what have you done? He is on the throne. He's in control. At the same time, verse 36, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and lords sought me. I was established in my kingdom and still more greatness was added to me. There's a principle there as well. If we humble ourselves before the Lord, he will lift us up. Right? That doesn't, this is not some cheap formula for instant success. No. But the Bible literally says, James 4, 6, God opposes the proud. You're walking in pride before God, he will oppose you to your face. But he gives grace to the humble. Uh, James four ten. when we humble ourselves, he will exalt us. Not like exalting like we're God, no, but he'll lift us up. First Peter 5, 6 says the same thing. Humble yourself in the sight of the Lord so at the proper time he may exalt you. You see the pattern there? If you want to live the full, abundant life that God has for you, the life that you were created to live, you need to walk in humility before the Lord. 
You need to let go of this pride. You need to let go of the spirit of Babylon. You need to let go of this language of, because some people are just actively, verbally against God. I don't need God. I don't believe in God. But maybe you're here and you're just passively resistant to God, passively prideful. Your heart of hearts, yeah, I believe in God and I'm a, I'm a Christian and all that. But I'm on the throne. I'm at the center. I do what I want and I got this. That's an attitude we need to repent of. And the whole point is this in verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, I praise and extol and honor the king of heaven. That's the point of this. It's not about you. It's about him. For all his works are right and his ways are just and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Let's wrap this up here. This whole message really is about pride. This whole chapter is about pride. Again, whether that's an active, outright, puffed up, verbal pride against God or you're just quietly fine living without him or not involving him or not centering onto him. Again, you need to know there is a God in heaven who rules and reigns. His kingdom is over all. And this same God, the powerful creator, ruling and reigning God is inviting you to a good life, a full life. He's inviting you to a relationship. He's inviting you to a peace. He's inviting you to joy. He's inviting you to hope. He's inviting you to eternity. But you need to humble yourself before him. Does not work if we're walking in pride. We will never live the life that God has for us if we're on the throne of our heart. It will never happen. So let's take our cues from the word of God. Let's humble ourselves. Let's be honest before the Lord. Let, let our heart be. It says in John 3.30, let him increase and let me decrease. It's not about me. It's not about you. It's about Jesus.